This afternoon, we'll be beginning once again in the Heidelberg Catechism. We'll be working our way through it, beginning with Lord's Day 1. And so in connection with this first question and answer, what is your comfort? We'll be reading together from Philippians 1. Philippians chapter 1, the verses 1 to 18. You'll be able to find that on page 1348 of your pew Bible. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, How greatly I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. But I want you to know, brethren, the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. The Word of God. We'll now read together from Lord's Day 1, and you'll be able to find that on page 517, and I'll be reading that. What is your only comfort in life and death, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ? He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. What do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? First, 
how great my sins and misery are. Second, how I'm delivered from all my sins and misery. And third, how I am thankful to God for such deliverance. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, perhaps in the last little while, you have run across the name Jordan Peterson or heard of his newest book, 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos. For those of you who don't know, Jordan Peterson is the University of Toronto professor who was recently shot to fame because of his refusal to use pronouns that society demanded that he use, resulting in people not only being called he and she, but also demanding that he use gender-neutral pronouns such as Z. Jordan Peterson has, in many ways, become the great thinker of our era. For a long time, this book of his was sitting at number one in Amazon in Canada and in the United States. I lifted a quote off his own website, which reads, he's a Quora most viewed writer with 200,000 subscribers, a million views a month, and 30 million views in total. He has many who describe themselves as his devotees and has been called the Plato of this age. Why is this significant for us? When it rains in the world, it drips in the church. He's an enormously influential figure among young men in North America, and that means he's not unheard of in our circles either. There have been people who have thanked him deeply for having radically changed their lives for the better. As such, Peterson has had rising interest in our circles. A pastor told me not too long ago that he was at a youth retreat and he saw a young man carrying Jordan Peterson's book. Is this wrong? No, I wouldn't go as far as to say that, but if we are going to have exposure to the teachings of such people who are shaping such a large part of society, it's good to be aware of the weaknesses of what they're looking at. So, what is the main thrust, the main philosophy behind this teaching that's busy sweeping the nation. Peterson writes in chapter 6 of his book, everyone is destined for pain and slated for destruction. And his philosophy also comes to a head at the pinnacle of his book. Maybe when you are going for a walk and your head is spinning, a cat will show up. And if you pay attention to it, then you'll get a reminder for just 15 seconds that the wonder of being, the wonder of existence, might make up for the ineradicable suffering that accompanies it. Now, Peterson is a man who has much in the way of good advice and offers much in the way of being able to stand up for yourself and take yourself in hand, but still, he is missing one major thing. He's missing Christ. This isn't to say that he doesn't believe in Christ, and we find this in society at large today as well. Society believes in Christ as an ideal. Society believes in Christ as the perfect standard who will help you alleviate your own personal suffering. But only in the sense of everyone aiming to become their own Christ, to seek heaven on this earth, or at least to flee hell on this earth by your own efforts. More than that, it's a cold comfort that's offered. Suffering's inescapable here, he teaches. 
And he's right on that. Suffering is inescapable here due to sin. Minimize your suffering here, he says. Minimize the suffering of those around you and you'll live a meaningful life. But is that the only comfort this world has to offer us? A meaningful life. And when death comes to look back on that life with satisfaction, would that grant you comfort in the face of death? What's your hope in the face of that, brothers and sisters? Could you face your death with courage and conviction? Or if not with courage, could you at least take comfort in it? I dare say that without Christ, you cannot. Beloved, what is your comfort? I would urge you today, if you have not done so already, to find your comfort in Christ and to do this for two reasons. First of all, to live as Christ. And second, to die is gain. In Christ, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So in connection with that, let's take some time to read from our passage, Philippians 1, the verses 19 to 26. Philippians 1, verses 19 to 26. He's just spoken of how the gospel is preached by some out of selfish ambition and by some out of goodwill. He says here in verse 19, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Christ Jesus by my coming to you again. In the Word of God. Now, in, in our passage today, we find Paul in a difficult situation. He's facing the question of what his life will be like in the near future. He is in a Roman prison, and this could very well be, humanly speaking, the end of the road for him. More than that, there are those who are trying to undermine him in the ministry. They are preaching Christ out of envy and strife, out of selfish ambition, he says, in verses 15 to 16. The people he's writing to, the Philippians, they're in a difficult situation as well. They were facing persecution and opposition, causing Paul to say to them in verse 28, striving together for the faith of the gospel, be not in any way terrified by your adversaries. They were finding themselves terrified by their adversaries. And yet, despite all that, and in the face of all that, he writes, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. He's so thankful in this situation. What's the reason for this? 
All of his encouragement comes out of the verses of our text, verses 19 and following. So what's he saying there? Let's unpack it. First, we read him speaking about deliverance. Now, considering the fact that he's in prison, our first thought is that perhaps he's expecting physical deliverance, to be set free from the shackles that he's currently wearing because of their prayers and because of his work in preaching. But that's not it at all. You see, for Paul, being physically free really means nothing. If the difference between life and death doesn't matter to him, how could mere chains bother him? Rather, he's voicing a confidence. He's voicing the very confidence that he preaches in Romans 8, verse 28, that all things, all things work together for the good of those who love God and who work according to, the, to his purpose. And what's the greatest good that God could possibly maintain for a human being? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To live in fellowship with him. That is why he's so confident that his current situation, his current shackles, will work together for his deliverance and for his salvation. He has such a strong confidence in his Lord and Savior that not even the strongest shackles on earth, nor the fiercest enemies of this world, nor the prince of darkness himself can separate him from that love. Rather, though all the forces of this world should rage against him, and every conspiracy of man should try to subdue him, he will find his hope and confidence in this, that his Lord has him safely in hand, and his Lord will deliver him and grant him salvation. Beloved, is this your hope? Does your Lord have you safely in hand? Will your Lord deliver you no matter what comes? The theologian J.C. Ryle puts it this way. When we have carried you to your narrow bed, let us not have to hunt up stray words and scraps of religion in order to make out that you were a true believer. Let us not have to say in a hesitating way to one another, I trust that he is happy. He talks so nicely one day, and he seems so pleased with a chapter in the Bible on another occasion. And he likes such a person who is a good man. Let us be able to speak decidedly as to your condition. Let us have some solid proof of your repentance, your faith, your holiness, so that none shall be able for a moment to question your state. Depend on it. Without this, you leave behind, those you leave behind can feel no solid comfort about your soul. We may use the form of religion at your burial and express charitable hopes. We may meet you at the church gate and say, blessed are the dead that die in the Lord. But this will not alter your condition. If you die without conversion to God, without repentance, and without faith, your funeral will only be the funeral of a lost soul. You had better never have been born. O oh, beloved, there are consequences for eternity if you do not take this seriously. 
At best, you'll be able to look at this world as a place of inescapable suffering and say, I've made my mark on this world, and it is this, to ease some of that suffering, to bring some minor form of relief. But what good will it do in the long run when we face that great and terrible day of the Lord? We read in Zephaniah 1, verse 15 to 17, that it will be a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. I will bring distress upon men, and they will walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like refuse. This bears consequences for eternity. And I fear for you if you do not take this seriously. If your only purpose in this life is to ease your suffering in this world, and if your only purpose is to ease the suffering of others, but you do not turn to Christ, what hope do you have? You will be burning in hell for eternity. And I pray in Christ that this would not be you. I pray that it would not be you. Brother and sister, does this hope that Paul expresses ring true as your hope? Paul expresses this conviction for one reason and for one reason only. Because Christ is in all and Christ is everything to him. You can see this in the words that he expresses, that in nothing he would be ashamed, but with all boldness he would speak so that Christ will be magnified in his body, whether in life or in death. Is this your hope? Today, you heard me read the confession that you are not your own that you belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to Jesus Christ. After this service, you'll sing it. Do you mean it? Do you believe it? Do you believe that He has fully paid for all your sins with His precious blood and has set you free from all the power of the devil? For there's no other way to get the hope that follows. There's no other way to have the confidence that follows. That he preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. For that's the exact confession of Paul. It's his confidence in Christ that leads him to say that these chains that he's wearing, these chains will work together for his salvation will work together for his deliverance. It's his confidence in Christ that leads him to say that to live is Christ and to die is gain. But what does that mean, you may say? How can I have assurance that I live to Christ, that I am seeking him? He himself, Paul himself, expands on this. If I live in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. 
Every part of his life in the flesh is directed to Christ. And this will bear fruit in his life because it'll transform not just his life, but it'll transform the lives of everyone around him. You see, the life of a Christian is transformational. If you call yourself a Christian, but see no difference between yourself and the world around you, if the words of Jordan Peterson ring all too true for you, that all that could give you meaning in life is to limit your suffering and to limit the suffering of those in the world around you. Oh, what a cold comfort that is. But if Christ is the Lord of your life, then to live is Christ. To live is to find your solace in Him, your comfort in Him. To live is to have Him as your guarantee, as your life, as your image to follow and to model your life after. And when you fall short, as you so often will, when you fall short, as you so often will, to live is to have Him as your priest who intercedes at the throne of God on your behalf. When you come before God begging for forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ, you will love Him. And your love will impact your life. It will mean fruit in your labor because each day will draw you closer to Him. You will seek Him. You will seek the strength of the Spirit that will direct you to live like Him and for Him and in Him. And that Spirit, the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ will work in you an assurance that comes from seeking your confidence in Him. But more than that, as our catechism puts it so beautifully, we'll become heartily willing and ready to begin living out this life clothed in Christ here on earth. To be heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. When that happens, then indeed it will become a struggle to live as Christ and to die is gain. Paul said that he was hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart with Christ, which was far better. Why? Because he loved Christ. But to remain in the flesh was necessary for the sake of the Philippians, because then he could continue to bring Christ to them. Sir, we would like to see Jesus and he would bring them to him. He writes, being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. His remaining in the flesh here is with the intention of letting those who are close to him continue and grow in progress and in the, the joy of faith. He wants to bring Jesus to those he loves. As many of you will know, recently I went to Ottawa for the funeral of my aunt. We're very close to that side of the family and she's very dear to us. It was a bittersweet time, spending time with that side of the family and seeing each other again but also doing so with the knowledge that we're saying goodbye, or perhaps even better, until we meet again to her. 
But one thing that really struck me in the time that I spent with them was the fervent desire of my aunt to make sure that everybody there heard about Christ. That all of her loved ones heard about Christ. She'd been suffering for quite some time, so this for her was a relief from her pain. But there was more to it than that. She loved her Lord. And she was ready to meet him, but she knew that there were many among the over 500 who came to visit that were not. Members of her family, doctors that gave her care, the nurses that she affected by her refusal to be bitter in her situation, but to recognize that the Lord was in control by her earnest desire that even her cancer be used to glorify God, that she didn't want to waste her cancer. Now, I say this not to elevate her. That was the last thing that she wanted. But I say this because I want for you and for me what she wanted expressed off the pulpit for everyone there, to know Christ and to find their hope in him, to repent from their sin and to turn to him in faith. And it made me really reflect in a different light on our catechism today, as well as on our passage, Philippians 1. Life is fleeting. Even for you young people, this is something you should reflect on, because you never know when the Lord will take you home due to sickness, or an accident, or something else. I had a friend who was in high school, who died while quadding. There was a little boy last week that they prayed for off the pulpit of Grand Valley, a little toddler named Caden, who had been swept away, from, swept away by the river. Life is fleeting. Are you ready to face that prospect? For those of you who are visiting today, perhaps you have not put your trust in Christ. Perhaps Christ is only a shadowy figure for you, a murky shape on a distant horizon. You know that suffering is inevitable in this world, varying degrees faced by different people, but it is inevitable. And you feel your only hope is for a meaningful life, a life in which you face your suffering with a desire to lessen it in your own life as well as in the lives of others. And that's all you see as a meaningful life. But let me tell you, friend, this is not your only hope. For in this world, even your suffering can have meaning. As the Apostle Paul writes in verse 29 of our passage, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Even your suffering becomes meaningful in Christ. Even your suffering begins to work not only for your deliverance, but you can use your suffering to direct the hearts of those who are around you to the risen Christ. Consider the person on their deathbed who speaks powerfully of their hope in Christ, the one who with their dying breath expresses their confidence that they will be with Jesus Christ, the one who says, I don't want to waste my cancer. I don't want to waste my suffering. I want it all to be for Jesus Christ. 
Consider the person who says, as Paul says, I'm hard-pressed between the two, knowing that you need me here and you love me here, but knowing that to be with Christ is better, than, better by far. This hope can be yours. This eager expectation, this desire to be snatched up from the suffering of this earth into heaven can be yours. This life which gives meaning even to our sufferings, which says that to suffer for the sake of Christ, praising Christ in the storm, is something granted to us as a privilege. It is meaningful. This can be yours. Friend or fellow church member who has not put your trust in Christ, see Christ while he may still be found. And see if he does not transform you, shape you, and mold you into his image. See if he does not work in you an assurance that grants a joy beyond all measure, no matter what this life can throw at you. As Spurgeon wrote, I bear my testimony that there is no joy to be found in all this world like that of sweet communion with Christ. I would barter all else there is of heaven for that. Indeed, that is heaven. As for the harps of gold and the streets like clear glass and the songs of seraphs and the shouts of the redeemed, one could very well give all these up, counting them as a drop in the bucket, if we might forever live in fellowship and communion with Jesus. You will find that there's a transcendent joy in seeking and discovering your Savior. It's as the psalmist writes in Psalm 84, verse 10, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would much rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. And with your Savior as your King, putting your old self to death and being robed in the righteousness of Christ, that one day that is better than a thousand elsewhere will at the end of your earthly days become one day that is one of a thousand one of a million, one of an eternal, uncountable number in the presence of this Savior who has now become so precious to you. You'll find that to live is indeed Christ. Every aspect of life suddenly takes on meaning. Every part of who you are is drenched in the person and work of Christ, but that pales in comparison with what awaits you, for to die is gain. To die in Christ is to hear the words of that voice you have so longed for. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And to enjoy him and to live with him forever. Amen.